Well, thank you, Gary, for that reminder about focusing on Christ, encouraging to me, brother. Thank you for that. Thank you, Randy, for your testimony. It's been a joy studying the Word of God with you at Lamarada Flock, and look forward to serving with your family for years to come. And thank you, Mike, for praying for us and reading the Scriptures. A uh, short passage doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, but it's a short passage nonetheless. Just another reminder that this is Communion Sunday, and we... Uh, place a high premium on the purity of the church. And we ask that if you are a first-time visitor to our church and you are a believer and would like to partake with partake in communion with the believers here, we ask that you would um, join our uh, welcoming uh, fellowship, welcoming ministry, and we would like to hear your testimony, hear your firm, the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, and to hear your testimony of faith in Christ we would love to extend our right hand of fellowship and invite you to partake of the bread and the cup together so that we might, in unity as believers, glorify Christ, remember His death, and be mindful of His return, His imminent return to take us to His kingdom forever. Well, I thought, you know, I would be done with John 12 by today, but it looks like we got two more studies, at least two more in John chapter 12. As I've said before, it has been a wonderful study in the course of my life. I will definitely look back to John 12 and see it as a spiritual marker uh, and remember that God, through our study, taught me about His glory and did a special work of grace in convicting my heart to spread His glory among the nations. I will really remember uh, this chapter, this study, and I pray that through my life, our family, and our family here at Cornerstone, um, John 12 will be lived out in, in passionate living for um, God's name, God's glory here in Orange County and throughout the world. Well, just a brief review of our past few studies. As I've said, the theme of the closing section of John 12 is the glory of God. We began this series by looking at verses 27 and 28 and considered the motivation of our Lord going to the cross. This is triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Our Lord entered Jerusalem with a throng of crowds welcoming Him in. And yet He realizes that within five days that He will die on the cross as he contemplates his divine separation from God the Father whom he loves, as he meditates upon the divine judgment, the wrath of God that will be placed upon him as the sins of the world are are placed on him, he says in verse 27, My soul is troubled. My soul is agitated. And what shall I say? Shall I pray to God the Father, save me from this hour? Shall I pray for deliverance? He says to himself, no, it is for this very reason I have come. I have come to die. I have come to be cursed. I have come to hang on a tree as a substitute for man. And then he says in verse 28, it is a declaration. It is an exclamation, a testimony saying, Father, glorify your name. And we learn that that was the supreme motivation of Christ going to the cross. He went to the cross 
his prime motivation was for the glory of God. He was not a pragmatist. He was not an idolater. He was not man-centered. Christ was God-centered. And he declared that he was going to the cross for the glory of his Father's name, that Yahweh's name might be exalted, honored, and revered among the people. And then we find that God Himself is not an idolater, that God is passionate also for Himself, that God cannot contain Himself. He responds in an audible voice. Second part of verse 28, Then a voice came from heaven. God Himself says, I have glorified it, talking about His name, and I will glorify it again. God's response is that the ultimate end, the ultimate purpose of His existence The reason He does all things is for His own glory. And then in verse 32, we found our Lord's response. What is God, Christ's response to God the Father declaring that He exists for His own glory? Christ's response is, I want to spread that glory to all nations. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. Now all men is not all men. Why? Because... It's not universalism. Not everyone is saved. The people that asked this question were Greeks, non-Jews, Gentiles who became converts to Judaism. And therefore, Christ, looking at these two groups of people, the believing Jews and also these proselytes, Gentile believers, He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to Myself. I will spread God's glory to all nations, to all tribes, to all ethnicities. I will declare God's glory. I remember that sermon. How as believers, that must be our desire. That must be our heart cry. That we must not be satisfied to declare God's glory here in Orange County. You know, here in Southern California, we must not be satisfied with that ambition. If we are passionate about the glory of Christ, it must be global. It must be multi-ethnic. It must be spread throughout all nations. Therefore, our heart cry must be for God's fame to spread to every people who do not know Him. Our passion for God's glory is vindicated by our commitment to declare His glory among all the nations. And that is our commitment. That is our prayer. That God will raise up missionaries from within Cornerstone who will go for us in three to five years. Well, two weeks ago, we took last week off because of Mother's Day. Two weeks ago, we discovered the biblical reason why so many rejected Christ, Jesus, as the Messiah. We discover the theological reason for their rejection. Verses 37 to 38, 39. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still will not believe in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, down to verse 40 and 41, he has blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts, that they cannot neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. This tells us that their rejection of Christ was promised in the Scriptures. That God confirms their blindness. God hardens their hardened hearts. 
for His own glory. The title of that sermon was God's Glory Stands Firm. The unrighteous, those who stubbornly refuse to acknowledge Christ, submit to His authority, to give God glory, they do not frustrate God's plan to glorify Himself. Regardless, God is glorified. God is glorified by the salvation of the elect. And God is also glorified by His wrath, His judgment, His, His indictment against the wicked, the day of judgment. God's glory stands for Him. Well, I thought that was the end. I thought we could package this deal, move on to John 13 and study Christ as He wipes the feet of sinners and, and look at servanthood. But in verses 42 and 43, tells us the real reason. Not the, you know, that's the wrong way to put it, put it. The practical reason why these men rejected Christ. Verses 37 through 41 tells us the theological reason, the biblical reason for their rejection. Verses 42 and 43, it's the mundane, the practical, the real life reason why they rejected Christ. Nevertheless, many believed in Him, even of the authorities believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They did not testify before men of their faith in Christ. Because of fear of the Pharisees, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This tells us that there are two competing glories in the world. God desires to be glorified. At the same time, men compete for that glory. Men desire the glory that belongs to God. Men desire the praise, the acclamation, the adoration that belongs to God. There is a decision before every man. Am I going to live for the glory of God? Or am I going to live for the glory of man? For my own glory? Or for the glory of others? Another way to put it is, am I going to fear God? Or am I going to live my life on the fear of man. Fear of man. It is one or the other. You will either live your life in joyful, reverential fear of God, or you will live your life in misery, enslaved to the sinful fear of man. Now, someone might say, James... You know, fear of man, yeah, I can see how it's a uh, constraining vice. Yeah, maybe I would agree with you, it is sinful. Maybe it is even sin, but is it noteworthy? Is it significant enough for us to devote a whole study, maybe two studies on this topic of fear of man? It seems harmless. It seems hardly worth dealing with. Look at this passage and we see the insidious consequence the ultimate consequence of fearing man. Look at verse 42. Many believed in Him. 
And John says, even of the authorities, they believed in the claims of Christ. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. And the privacy, the security of their own hearts. He is the Messiah. He is from God. He is speaking the truth. Although they believed in Christ, they did not confess it. They did not entrust themselves to Him. They did not publicly acknowledge faith in Christ. This tells us that they were possessors of false faith. In our study of the book of James, we're learning that there are two kinds of faith. There is a genuine, living, dynamic, active faith that produces fruit. And there is the false, empty, dead, non-life-changing faith. The demonic faith. Where even demons believe in God and shudder, but they don't repent. These men were possessors of that second kind of faith. The dead, the empty faith. They had that kind of faith which is so common among people today who call themselves Christians. Churches are filled with such people who, in their hearts, they believe, confess quietly their faith in Christ. But it is a dead faith. It is an empty faith. Because they're dominated by the fear of man, not by the fear of God. It is a, merely an intellectual agreement with the Bible. It's an intellectual assent with the claims of Scripture. But there is no self-denial. There is no active duties of piety. There, are, there is no fear of God that overrides the fear of man. What dominated, dominated them is verse 42, second part. Fear of the Pharisees. They were cowards. They were afraid of men. They were afraid of being made outcasts of society. They would not be put out of the synagogue, unsynagogue. They didn't want to be excommunicated from the Jewish faith. John 9.22 tells us that the Pharisees declared, if anyone is a follower of Christ, they'll be cast off from the synagogue. They'll be considered outside the realm of the Jewish faith. They'll be shunned by the religious system. And so these men, even the leaders, were afraid of what the Pharisees could, could do to them. They were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. They would rather face the reproach of God than the reproach of man. They would rather have Jesus be killed than give up their positions of prestige and honor. And then verse 43. Here is that one coin. On one side is the fear of man. On the other side, these two go hand in hand. This is the other side of the fear of man is being a man-pleaser. Desiring the, the, the praise of man. Here is the other reason. Same coin for their rejection of Christ. Verse 43, they love the glory. The doxa. Same word. They love the, you know, the, the glory, the praise, the adoration. When Christ entered Jerusalem, the throngs of people gathered around Him and they lifted their hands, they put down their palm branches and said, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the King of Israel. And they gave Christ glory. And these men loved that glory. They loved that praise. They were drunk with it. They were addicted to it. And they wanted that more than the praise that comes from God. 
They wanted that kind of glory, the popularity, success, living up to man's expectations. They wanted that more than the pleasure of God, the praise of God. I, mean, I would sum the praise of God as declared in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one. Remember Christ talks about the parable of talents and God, the master, gives different talents to everyone and at the end of the day, the servants come in and the, the, the man who had two talents and he multiplied and he made four. What does the master say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. And then the master says, come and share in your master's joy. That's the praise that God gives. But the Apostle John here tells us plainly that these men were not only cowards, they loved the praise of man above everything, even above the praise of God. They could not bear the idea of being laughed at, of being ridiculed, reviled, and persecuted by their fellow men. They loved the praise, so therefore they sacrificed what they knew to be true. They sacrificed their own convictions. They sacrificed their own heart, their values, to know Jesus was a Christ. They went against their conscience, all because they loved and they needed the praise of people, and this was Christ's indictment throughout the Gospels. Our Lord exposed them time and time again. This insidious, false motivation. John 5.44, Christ said, How can you believe me? If you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain praise that comes from God. What about Matthew 23, 5-7? Remember that? Just mother of all rebukes towards the Pharisees. Christ said of them, Everything they do, is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. The boxes where they have the verses of Scripture, they make it wide. They, everybody knows that they love the Word of God. They make the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets. They love the most important seat, seats in the synagogues. They love to be called rabbi. They love to be greeted in the marketplace as teacher. These men were governed by self-interest. And so here in this passage, we discover the most insidious consequence of fearing man. It's not harmless. It's not a minor sin. It's not a trivial issue. Look what happened to these men. It, it, it resulted in them rejecting Christ. And you know what? After all is said and done, that's why most men reject Christ. It's not because of some existential, philosophical argument. It's not because of lack of evidences. It's not because of some grandiose reason of canonicity of the Scriptures. No. The reason most men reject Christ is because they either fear men, they fear their family, fear their friends, fear for themselves, or they love man. They love the praise. They love the glory of this world rather than Christ. Tragic consequences. In Revelation 21, 6 through 8, when all men are judged, 
and the wicked are thrown in to the everlasting fire. This is what Christ says. Revelation 21, verse 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, and he lists all the wicked traits of those who are perishing in hell, that will perish in hell. And he says, but the cowardly, that's the first description, but the cowardly, unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning and sulfur. This is the second death. What a tragic consequence of being a coward. Eternal separation from God. Commentator Albert Barnes said this, These men whose minds were convinced, but whose hearts remained unmoved, not only feared the religious authorities, but they also desired the approval of their fellow man. They preferred the praise of other sinners above the praise of God. Oh, the short-sighted folly of these wretched men. Oh, the madness of their miserable choice. Of what profit would the good opinion of the Pharisees be when the hour of death overtakes them? In what stead will it stand them when they appear before the judgment throne of God? As Matthew 10 says, What profits a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? Let us remember that we cannot have both the good will of sinners and the good will of God. James 4.4 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of this world is an enemy of God. What sad, poor souls because they sought the approval of men, because they loved their lives, they have lost everything. Now, let's transition here a little bit. Before we point our fingers and we're shocked at the cowardness and just the shallow and pettiness of these men, let us be reminded that this plague of fear of man is not confined to the people here in John 12. Let us be reminded, all of us, to different degrees, are plagued by the same disease. That all of us have the fear of man to different degrees. Let's look a little deeper into this subject of the fear of man. Lest you, you refuse to glorify God to a certain degree. Lest you bear the ultimate consequence because you fear man instead of God. Fear of man is a biblical terminology. It means being afraid of someone 
but it extends to holding someone in awe. It's the idea of being controlled or mastered by people's opinions. It's the constraining vice that's in our hearts where it constrains us to worship other people, to put our trust in people, or to need people. Fear is broadly defined and also the word man is broadly defined. It's not just limited to the male gender. It could be fear of women, fear of parents, fear of children, fear of bosses, fear of pastors, other Christians. It is not limited to just the male gender. The fear of man can be summarized this way. It is replacing God with people. It is the replacement of God with people. The fear of man is the sinful attitude towards people. It is, in essence, idolatry. It is worshipping man rather than God. It is fear that dominates your life even when legitimate fear is not warranted. Now, there is a healthy dose of fear, right? If someone is running at me with a knife, you know, I should be afraid, right? I should be seeking help from Bob or someone, right? There is legitimate fear. But fear of man is fear that is not legitimate, fear that is out of control, fear that rules and dominates one's life. Important for us that all of us have it. All men have this fear of man. There are many different terms for it. In our teens, we call it peer pressure. Right? We're just pressured by our peers. I read a magazine article months ago on Newsweek how young girls are pressured into dressing immodestly. That they're forced to dress in an immodest way, because if they don't, then immediately they're ostracized by their peers, and they're relegated to the, the lunch table with, I don't know, those other people, right? <laughs> and for the rest of their high school years, they're not popular. So they have to dress a certain way. They have to listen to a certain kind of music. They have to have their hairstyle a certain way. Right? When we get older, it's called people-pleasing, Dr. Phil calls it codependency, right? Well, all these labels aside, we can safely say it is, in essence, it's the fear of man. Now, how can we know if, if we are dominated by this fear? Let me just share with you several symptoms of fear of man. How can you know if you're infected by this disease of fear of man? Uh, do a checklist. See if you have these symptoms. First of all, as we said, have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Are you easily influenced to go against your convictions because of the opinions of others? Are you influenced in your, your preferences in life, in, in music, in clothes, and in, in just even your speech because of your peers? 
Another symptom is, are you overcommitted? Do you find that you have a hard time saying no when wisdom dictates that you should say no? Are you such a people pleaser that you can't let anybody down? Do you have to meet everyone's expectations? That your fear in life is to disappoint people? So you say yes to everyone and yes to everything? How about not just time, but do you shower people inappropriately with gifts? Do you give gifts out of obligation, out of shame, out of wanting something in return? Oh, if I don't give this person a $20 gift, what will this person think of me? Or a $40 gift. Oh, I have to give this person a $50 gift because they'll think I'm whatever, right? Do you seek to buy friendships, buy relationships with gifts? Proverbs 19.6, many curry favor with a ruler. And everyone is the friend of a man who gives gifts. And therefore, that's your strategy in life. Um, Do you need something from your spouse? Do you need something? Do you need your spouse to love you, to respect you, to honor you? Now think about it. I mean, good communication is a good thing. Husband and wife should love one another. But... If you need something from your spouse, that means your spouse controls you. Your spouse rules you. Your spouse has taken the place of God in your heart. Hey, you know, single guys and gals, if any guy or girl says to you, I need you, right? I can't live without you, you call Bob and me right away. <laughs> and you rat on them because <laughs> that means he or she is an idolatry. If, they, if anybody says, I can't live without you, right? What about favoritism? Do you treat people differently based upon their careers? Based upon maybe their education? Their income? Their status? Do you treat people differently based upon their looks? Right. Are you threatened by people who are quote-unquote more attractive, more educated, more intelligent? Another one, is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Does your life revolve around what others think of you? Do you fear the opinions of others, opinions of strangers, outright strangers? Do you see people as people who pump you up? People are gas pumps. They're there to stroke your ego, to fill you up, to make you feel good. People either pump you up or they cause you to lose your self-esteem. You know what that is? That's pride. If you have low self-esteem, it's the paradox of self-esteem. It's pride. It means that you think too highly of yourself. It means you're self-occupied. You're preoccupied with worship of self. You feel you deserve better. You have a higher view of yourself. You want and need the praise of others. You're a peasant and you want to be king. That's the dark truth about self-esteem. It is rooted in pride. A few more symptoms. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Do you fear being vulnerable? Do you fear communication? Do you fear this open dialogue because people might find out you're a sinner? You're an imposter? 
That is a daily ritual. You wake up and put your mask. Every day is Halloween. Right? Every day. Put a mask on in the morning. Take it off at night. Are you always second-guessing your decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of failure, making mistakes? Are you afraid of giving your answer, straight-up answer, giving your opinion, telling others what you think, what you believe, because of what others might think of you? Do you get easily embarrassed? Right? I mean, I've heard of people not coming to school because they had a bad haircut or bad hair day or, you know, just those things, right? I mean, I, I wrestled to use this illustration or not, but, I mean, it's here, so I'll go with it. Um, you know, a few months ago, we had a brother who had surgery and he came to church with a medical gauze on his, on his face. Man, there's a man, there's no fear of God, not for fear of man. There is a man, right? I mean, there is a man who just doesn't care. He's a, I could tell, I saw his heart that day. His heart is to serve people, love people, worship Christ. Not to, his life is not dominated by the opinions of others. Two symptoms, do you ever lie, especially white lies, to make yourself look better than others? Make yourself look better before other people? Right? Do you spin things, you know? Do you spin your life so that you, you come out... As a, in a better light? Are you like managing your persona? Are you a PR director for your own life? Are you a public relations manager for your, your own life and you just present things before men so that people might have a good view of yourself, view of you? Finally, do you feel empty or meaningless? Are you glory hungry? Are you love hungry? Are you a needy person emotionally? Right? I mean, biologically, all your needs are met. I mean, we eat, we have clothes, we have cars, we have a roof over our heads. Spiritually, all our needs are met. Like Gary said, our sins are forgiven, we're adopted as children, we have heaven waiting for us, and yet, you're empty and meaningless. Why? Because, psychologically, you're, you're needy. Right? You don't feel loved. You feel lonely. You need... You need people's esteem. You need people's praise. You need people's glory. These are all symptoms of the fear of man. I I checked off many. I'm sure all of you have as well. Fear of man is dangerous. Fear of man is a serious threat to our Christian lives. I'll just share with you several dangers of the fear of man. Number one, it is idolatry. Fear of man is idolatry. People are our cherished idols. Instead of worshiping God, we worship people, hoping that they will take care of us, seeking to receive what we need by men and not from God. It is idolatry that leads to disobedience. 1 Samuel 15, 19-26. 1 Samuel 15. Here is King Saul, the monarch of the nation of Israel. He went against the command of, command of God through his prophet Samuel. Why? He says, because I was afraid of the soldiers. I was afraid of that private over there, what he would think of me. 
You know that corporal? What if he thinks I'm not a good king? I was afraid of his opinion, so I disobeyed God. Fear of man, secondly, is slavery. It is a terrible way to live. It is slavery. Proverbs 29.25 Proverbs 29.25 Fear of man will prove to be a snare. Bondage. Because whatever you need, whoever you need, controls you. If you need your husband or wife, if you need the affection of your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you need the praise of strangers to esteem you, affirm you, love you, then you are controlled by them. Therefore, as a result, you are in bondage. You are a slave. Thirdly, fear of man is a characteristic of the unrighteous. Is a characteristic of the unrighteous. Psalm 36.1 An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The righteous fear God. They do not fear man. The unrighteous do not fear God. They fear man. The final danger is just that. To the degree we fear man, to that degree we are not fearing God. To the degree we fear others, to that degree we are not fearing God. Galatians 1.10 Am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God? They are mutually exclusive. Am I, trying to be, am I trying to please men, Paul says? If I were trying to please men, I would not. He categorically states, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. They are mutually exclusive. The Bible dictates that every man stands at the crossroads between the fear of man and the fear of God. They are mutually exclusive. The fear of man is an insidious, deadly sin with devastating consequences and it must be cured. It must be dealt with. It must be addressed. Now, what is the cure for fear of man? Let me, as a spiritual doctor by the Word of God, give all of us, including myself, a threefold prescription for the fear of man. Number one, know and fear God. Second, know and love others. Third, know and deny oneself. Number one, know God and fear God. Number two, know others and love others. Number three, know yourself and deny yourself. The first prescription is the most radical treatment for the fear of man. It is to know God and to fear God. God must be bigger than people. Our Knowledge of God's glory must be increased. Our estimation of God's power and majesty, our doctrine of the attributes of God must grow for us to fight this fear of man. Ed Welch says in his book, and I owe a great deal to his book, when men are big and God is small, he says, quote, All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature, People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. 
since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know who God is. That God is awesome and glorious, not man. For these men in John 12, they were enslaved by the fear of man because they were blind to the majesty of the glory of God. To them, these men were too big. They did not see God as He truly is. God commands us to fear Him. Deuteronomy 5.29 God said of Israel, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me and keep My commands. Deuteronomy 6.13 Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in all His ways. To love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your souls. Luke 12, 4 and 5. Christ said, do not fear the man who can take away the body and can do nothing else. Fear the one who has authority over your body and your soul. Who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about God the Father. Don't be afraid. What's the worst they can do? Then kill you. That's it. Right? And then you die, you go to heaven. Right? Fear God, who has authority not just to kill you, but to send you to everlasting punishment in hell. So the first prescription is to know God, fear God. Second is to know others and love others. Know that all men are sinners. Right? Know that all men exist. Not for you, not for me, or for the glory of God. See, when I think that Billy exists for me, Billy sits there to listen to my sermon, right? To, to, to listen to me, to follow me, to give me praise. Then I'm afraid to lose that. I want to keep that. I want it to grow. I want Billy's view of James Shin to be so high, it just dominate his life. and He'll do whatever I say. And I'll do everything in my power to keep that and to cause that grow. But if I see Billy rightly, that he exists not for me, but for the glory of God, that he gives me nothing, and that I don't want anything because he doesn't exist for me, then I'm not constrained by fear of Billy or fear of anyone else. We must see rightly that everyone exists for the glory of God. Therefore, our Attitude towards men is not what we need from them, but it's our responsibility towards them. Right. Let me repeat that. That people exist not to meet my needs, but people exist for me to love and serve them. Let me illustrate this. And all right, This might be helpful. It might not. Um, I think parents can understand this. You know, I have a daughter, Elizabeth, two years old, precious kid. Right? I come, come home after a long day of work, and I just want to be loved by Elizabeth. I want her to hug me, kiss me, play with me, roll around the floor with me. I want to 
watch, you know, VeggieTales with her, feed her. I want her to love me and just say, I want, and I just say, Daddy, Daddy. I just want, I keep saying that. And, and I love that, right? So if I see her existing for me, then that's all it is. She exists to pump me up. But if I see her existing for the glory of God, then I see my responsibility towards Elizabeth. It's not for her to love me. It's for me to love her. Therefore, when I come home, what's my responsibility towards her? To teach her the Word of God. To train her. To discipline her when she sins. I don't want to discipline her. Because I want to be the nice guy. Right? I want to be the good guy. See, most nice guys, they're nice because they're, they're dominated by the fear of man. Right? They, want, they just want to say yes to everybody. They want to be nice to everyone. Right? It's easy for me to lavish love and give things to Elizabeth. But if I see my role rightly, I will discipline her for God's glory. Right. No others that they exist not to give us love, but for us to love them. And then finally, know and deny. Know yourself and deny yourself. Know who we are. We're here not to preserve our lives, but to give our lives away, to die to ourselves. John 12, 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Matthew 10, 37-39, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who is afraid of their parents more than they are afraid of me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me, they're concerned about the opinion of their children more than the opinion of God, is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, deny who he is, deny his own pleasures, his own desires, and take up the cross daily and follow me. The third prescription to the fear of man is know ourselves that we're sinners saved by grace and that we exist for God's glory. How do we do that? By denying ourselves. Now it's a two-part sermon. If, can I take you guys to one more passage? And I want to end on a positive note. Um, I'll continue our study in two week, or three weeks. But turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2. 4 through 8. And I just want to look at Paul and we just see here a man who is completely the opposite of a man pleaser. He's a model for all Christians, a model for all Christian leaders, and as a pastor, a model for me. Here's a man who was not afraid of man, was not constrained by the opinions of others, but his compulsion in life was the pleasure of God. First Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says, On the contrary, we speak the contrary of false teachers. These false teachers, they're nice to you because they want your approval. They want the praise of man rather than God. They're flattering you. Why? Because they're not trying to please God, but they want your praise. On the contrary, what Paul says, we speak as men approved by God, by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And he says, 
We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul understands that God is the heart tester. What does that mean? God is the heart searcher. The meaning here is that the Apostle Paul had a deep conviction of the truth that God knew the motives of all men and that God would reveal it one day. Therefore he says, I know God knows everything, God knows my heart and God knows that I am not striving to, to praise man, the approval of man, but the approval of God. And then he goes on in verse 5, You know we never use flattery. God is our witness. Flattery is the, is the method, the, the modus operandi of those who are man-pleasers, those who fear men. Paul says, I did not praise you for anything in this world. I did not deal with you in the language of adoration. I did not conceal from you with the painful truths Concerning your sins, I confronted you in all honesty. And when I praised you, it was because of honesty. He says in verse 6, We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Paul was not a spiritually or psychologically needy person. He was not dependent on people for encouragement. He was not glory hungry. He was not praised or attention hungry. He was not in the ministry for himself, for the attention, for the spotlight, for the acclaim. He didn't want anything from the Thessalonians. Not only that, verse 6, second part, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. As someone who was sent by Christ, I could have asserted my authority is an apostle, but we are gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. Paul was not on a power trip, ordering others around. He could have asserted his authority, but he was not a man pleaser. He was not pleasing himself, so he did not exercise his right, his authority. Instead, like a mom caring for her children, he was gentle towards them. And the clincher is verse 8. We love you so much that we are delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you have become so dear to us. Paul was vulnerable. Paul was transparent. Paul shared his life openly with them. This is a mark of a man who is a lover of man. He was not a man who was afraid of man. So for Paul, he has, he has nothing to hide. No reputation to hold up. He's not managing his pers- public persona. He opens his life. He opens his heart. He lets people in and allows people to see his life up close and personal. Why? Because he loves them. If he's a man pleaser, man pleasers, they isolate themselves. They feel distant from others. They feel separated from fellowship because they're afraid of being exposed. They're afraid of being found out. But if you're a lover of man, say, come, this is who I am. I have nothing to hide. 
I'm the worst of all sinners. You know that. I am far from perfect. You know my strengths and you know my weaknesses. So he sought to encourage the saints by his strengths and his weaknesses. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, I boast about my weaknesses. Right? All my failings, all my mistakes, all my weaknesses, I put on a billboard in my house for all men to see. Why? Because then we see the power of Christ. When I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. His weakness magnified the grace, the dunamis of Christ. Therefore, he boasted in his weaknesses. Just an encouragement to all of you who struggle in fellowship. All you spiritual leaders, shepherds, elders, pastors, right? discipleship leaders, ministry leaders. Do you struggle with fellowship? Do you struggle with discipleship, ministry, transparency? Do you struggle, do you feel isolated from the body, from others? Well, if you are a lover of man, you will not. If you love man, if you see people as objects to be served for the glory of God, you will be like Paul. You will share not just Sundays with them, but you will share every day of the week. You will share your life, strengths and the weaknesses, successes and failings, all for God's glory. Lord, we confess that oftentimes what is before our eyes is not the glory of God, but it's the fleeting glory of man. Lord, we confess often that what compels our hearts is not fear of you, but the fear of others. That is why we are so shallow in our obedience. That's why we're not as bold in evangelism. That's why we're afraid to step out of our comfort zones and to minister to one another, to serve one another, to evangelize the lost. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, that you would grant this grace, Lord, undeserving grace, for us to know who you are, to know the truth of God, your, your majesty, your beauty, your glory. That would cause in us such a fear, reverence of you, that we know room in our hearts for any kind of fear of man. That as we consider others, we would not be enamored by any man's earthly glory. We would see man as they are, sinners needing grace. Therefore, we would step out of our comfort zones, seeking to love them all for your glory. Lord, may the truths that we learned today and the symptoms we talked about, may the cures that we talked about, Lord, may be upon our hearts this week so that we might truly live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.